Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everyone to the Hong Kong Theatre at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the President and Vice-Chancellor of the LSE. And this event forms part of our LSE's Understanding the UK Economy series and is hosted by the Centre for Macroeconomics, a research centre that brings together world-leading experts to carry out pioneering research on the study of nations' prosperity and the crises that afflicts them. And I'm very pleased to welcome both our live audience here in the theatre and our online audience, which numbers, I think, close to a thousand this evening. And that reflects both the interest in what our speaker has to say and the turbulent economic times in which we find ourselves. These have been particularly turbulent times for central bankers. The pandemic and the war in Ukraine ended the period of low inflation and interest rates that have dominated the past decade. Instead, central bankers in the UK, the US and Europe have been steadily raising interest rates to tame inflation that has proven to be more stubborn than initially expected. In the UK, this realignment of policy was complicated by the trust trauma when macroeconomic sensibility was cast aside for a painful 44 days. And in the last two weeks, we've seen further instability caused by failures of some medium-sized banks in the US and a very large bank in Switzerland. Throughout this period, the Bank of England has tried to steady the ship while navigating toward the 2% inflation target. Arguably, the ship steadying has gone better than the navigation, but of course, it's always easy to say that with hindsight. Our speaker this evening is Andrew Bailey who has been the captain of that ship and is a key policymaker in the UK and globally with nearly four decades of experience as a regulator. Since March 2020, he has been the 121st governor of the Bank of England. And as such, he chairs the Monetary Policy Committee, the Financial Stability Committee and the Prudential Regulation Committee. Before becoming governor, he served as the chief executive of the Financial Conduct Authority and the chief executive of the Prudential Regulation Authority. And prior to that, he was executive director for banking services and chief cashier. And you will find his signature on some of your banknotes for those of you who still carry them. (laughs) Of course, his most important work came as a research officer here at the LSE in the mid-1980s, following his PhD in economic history at Queen's College, Cambridge. And even more important than that, his wife is a distinguished member of our faculty at the LSE and his daughter, a recent graduate. As usual, there'll be a chance to pose questions to the governor and for our online audience, you can submit those through the Q&A function. Please let us know your name and affiliation and we're particularly keen to hear from students and alumni. And for those of you in the theater, you can raise your hands in the conventional way. I'll try and take three questions from the audience here and then three questions from our online audience. And for those of you using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE UK economy. And this event is being recorded and will be turned into a podcast. And with all of that housekeeping out of the way, please join me in welcoming Governor Andrew Bailey, who will speak to us today on the topic of supply matters. Andrew, welcome. 
Well, thank you. And thank you, Manoush. It's always a great pleasure to be back at the LSC and to have the LSC behind me as well. Um, but it's always a really great pleasure to be at the LSC, as you say. I've got a, got a few connections and some very, very, very warm memories and uh, continuing connections as well. So it's a pleasure to be here. And, and Manish, you've set out very well the challenge in the sense of the upheaval that we've seen in recent years, very significant economic events that have deeply affected the UK economy, changing our trading relationship with the European Union, the COVID pandemic, shutdowns of some sectors of the economy, and the supply chain bottlenecks in others, and the rise in energy prices caused by Russia's brutal war on Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. And these shocks have affected the UK economy in different ways, but they've all eroded the terms on which we trade with the outside world. And this has made us, I'm afraid to say, poorer as a country. And they've manifested themselves in a rise in the price that we've had to pay for things uh, as consumers. And consumer price inflation in the UK is currently 10.4%, which of course is much too high. And it's our job, and we will do, to bring it back to the 2% target. And that's why last Thursday, uh, the MPC increased bank rate, the 11th meeting in a row, and we increased it to 4.25%. And that's more than four percentage points of increase since December 2021. And I know that these increases are being felt by households and businesses across the country. Now, I want to start by saying that monetary policy cannot make the shocks to our national real income go away. But what we can and must do is make sure that inflation that has come to us from abroad doesn't become lasting inflation generated at home. And the most important tool we have to do that is bank rate. That's the interest paid on reserves held by commercial banks at the Bank of England. And it's those commercial banks that are at the center of a system of intricately linked financial markets. So the bank rate feeds outwards and affects interest rates and yields more widely. And that determines the returns on savings and the cost of credit. The rates people pay on mortgages and the rates businesses pay on loans to finance their investments. So in that way, monetary policy exerts a powerful influence on spending by households and businesses. In that sense, monetary policy works through management of aggregate demand in the economy. Simply put, when inflation is too high, we increase bank rate to dampen demand. When inflation is too low, we reduce bank rate to boost supply. Now, that all sounds very simple, but in reality, it's more complicated. For a start, monetary policy operates with a lag. It takes time for those changes in bank rate to work through the financial system and for the changes to affect consumption and investment decisions by households and businesses. And it takes time for changes in those spending choices to affect prices in shops. What this means is that as the MPC, we have to look forwards and ahead and focus on the outlook for inflation as much as on its current level when we decide the appropriate level for bank rates. When we look at the outlook for inflation today, we therefore have to recognize that the full effect of the higher level of bank rate is still to work its way through financial markets and into the real economy. But there is another complication because what actually happens in the economy to economic activity and to inflation will be determined by aggregate demand and supply. Economic pl life plays out at the in intersection between them in an equilibrium. And while it's sometimes useful to focus on one of the two, taking the other as given, we always have to bear in mind 
that market economies work through the forces of both demand and supply. For monetary policy, the natural starting point is the demand side, because it exerts, as monetary policy, a powerful influence on the components of aggregate demand, consumption and investment. But it can do little to affect the supply side, the production technologies and the know-how used to make goods and services available for use in the economy. But it is ultimately this balance between demand and supply that determines inflationary pressures in the economy. And sometimes shifts in supply can be as abrupt and as important for the inflation outlook as shifts in demand. And we've seen this very clearly, very clearly in the past three years since COVID hit. And throughout this time, the MPC has had to pay close attention to the supply side of the economy and make a number of critical judgments about it. For instance, as care for the public's health necessitated a pause in the range of economic activities being undertaken. So it's for that reason that I'd like to focus on supply and what I'm going to say tonight. Now, I'm going to start by making a distinction between the short run and the long run here. Monetary policy's inability to influence supply has at times been taken to suggest that it has no effects on real economic activity at all. In classical economic theory, for example, monetary policy only affects nominal variables such as wages and prices, not real variables such as the level of production and the level of employment. And in this tradition, real business cycle theories have been developed in which supply-side disturbances are the main drivers. But overwhelming empirical evidence and many years of practical experience show that monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation through aggregate demand. In the new Keynesian models that have dominated monetary macroeconomics over the past three decades, monetary policy has real effects because market prices are sticky. So when nominal interest rates change, the real interest rates that determine real consumption investment decisions change with them. And markets may operate with excess supply or excess demand for as long as it takes wages and prices to adjust to shifts in either supply or demand. Rather, it's over longer stretches of time that monetary policy is indeed neutral and that we can think of the level of economic activity as being driven entirely by supply. By facilitating low and stable inflation, monetary policy helps create conditions conducive to economic growth. But other forces will ultimately determine the growth path of the economy. Economic growth, and with it the prospects for our real national income, will be determined by technological progress, investment and innovation, and by skills and trends in population. Equally, both the structure of the economy and the distribution of real national income are beyond the realm of monetary policy. Yes, it affects asset prices and unemployment over the near term, and it does, and excess demand or supply may give rise to sectoral imbalances. But over the longer term, these features of our national economy will be driven by real factors and by structural policies rather than monetary policy. Now, over time, even the level of interest rates is determined by such structural factors. While monetary policy steers market interest rates here and now, we do not set bank rates in a vacuum. The level of interest rates is anchored in an underlying equilibrium rate of interest determined by economic fundamentals on both the supply and demand side of the economy. The equilibrium rate of interest is the hypothetical interest rate that would sustain demand in line with supply and inflation at targets, and we call that R-star. 
Now, it's a theoretical concept that we can use to organize our thoughts. And we set this out in the monetary policy, as the Monetary Policy Committee back in August 2018. At the core of it is a distinction between the actual level of the equilibrium rate, tend to call that little r star, which moves around with cyclical factors acting on the economy, and a longer run trend component, which we tend originally to call big r star, which moves more slowly with underlying structural factors in the economy. In other words, little r star fluctuates around the long run trend of big r star as a result of shorter run influences on the economy. Now, neither little r star nor its trend component big r star can be directly observed. We cannot use them as direct guides to setting policy. But to the extent that they can be estimated, they may help us explain the evolution of interest rates over the past and inform our assessment of where interest will go in the future. Let me say a little bit more about this. One of the most striking global trends over the past half century has been an overall decline in the level of risk-free interest rates. That's risk-free in the sense that they are returns on lending that carries a negligible risk that payment obligations will not be met by the borrower. So this chart shows how, when we look at this over a longer period of time, 10-year UK nominal rates have fallen compared to where they were in the 1980s. Now, both the very low levels of interest rates we've seen in the years leading up to the COVID pandemic and their recent rise from those levels must be seen against the backdrop of that downward trend. Now, a good part of this decline can be explained by lower inflation itself. It reflects the success of inflation targeting in delivering low and stable inflation over long periods of time. Under inflation targeting, monetary policymakers act decisively to return inflation to target whenever shocks cause prices to rise or fall by too much. So even though inflation is now high, people can trust that it will come back down to target. And as a result, savers have come to demand a lower premium to compensate for expected inflation. But it's not just nominal interest rates that have fallen. If we adjust nominal interest rates for inflation and look at real interest rates, we can see they've fallen too. This chart shows the UK 10-year real interest rate measured directly from index-linked bond prices. It's clear that the real interest rate is quite responsive to cyclical events and that it has risen sharply over the past year. But beneath the volatility, there appears to have been a fairly steady downward trend from the 1990s, at least up until the onset of the COVID pandemic. Now, much has been said about this trend in risk-free interest rates. The next chart shows estimates of the global trend components of the equilibrium real interest rate, estimated by Bank of England staff. That's the blue line, along with other estimates from other academic papers. So we call this global R-star. Now you can see there are wide error bands around the central estimate, but the direction of travel is that global R-star has fallen over recent decades. As we look deeper into the causes of this, two supply factors stand out. A slowdown in productivity growth and, product and population aging across the advanced economies. Now, this is a global story, but let me focus on the UK. The next chart, which comes from our latest monetary policy report, shows that there's been a marked and sustained fall in productivity growth in the UK, in particular following the global financial crisis. 
If you look a little bit more closely, you can see that productivity was significantly boosted by very high growth in manufacturing sector productivity in the decade before the financial crisis, much faster than in the preceding 25 years. Now, this period is sometimes referred to as the Great Moderation, a period characterized by un unusually low volatility in both economic activity and inflation. But following the financial crisis, manufacturing productivity growth fell back very sharply. And this fall in manufacturing productivity is the main cause of the overall slowdown. Now, there's a lot of debate about why this has happened. And productivity may be harder to measure in the modern economy, where businesses invest as much in intangible capital, like software and branding, as in physical capital, like buildings and machinery. So measurement problems could be a part of the story, but much also points to structural change. Perhaps new ideas have become harder to come by, or perhaps technological innovation and specialization have faded as globalization slowed. Whatever the reason, when productivity growth is weak, companies gain less from installing new capital. So weaker productivity growth has meant that firms have sought to borrow less to finance investments at a given interest rate. And this reduction in the demand for capital has lowered the equilibrium rate. Now, let me go on to the second factor, which is population aging. This chart shows the age distribution for the United Kingdom. The share of the adult population aged 20 to 59 has fallen below 65% in the past decade, and it's set to decline further in the coming years. Population aging has been driven by a decline in birth rates relative to the high levels seen in the years following the Second World War, as well as the news that people now live for longer. As people accumulate savings over their working life to fund their retirement, wealth in the economy increases as the age distribution shifts towards older cohorts. So aging households have sought to lend more at a time when less productive firms have sought to borrow less. And the only way to establish an equilibrium between the supply and demand in the market for investable funds, that is to incentivize firms to invest this additional wealth into productive capital, has been for the price of those funds, the real interest rate, to fall. Now, the trend equilibrium rate, that's big R star, is like the long-term anchor for monetary policy. As R, big R star has fallen, monetary policy has moved with it. And this is an important point. The low level of interest rates over the past few decades reflects deep underlying factors on the supply side of the economy. And as those underlying factors, trends in technology and demographics only move slowly, it's not unreasonable to expect the gas star will remain low. What this means is that even as we now respond to rising inflation by raising bank rates, interest rates will not necessarily have to return fully to and remain around the higher levels they once had. But I want to add a caveat, and I'm going to quote now. I'll tell you the end of the quote. It's important to note that forecasting the future path of big R star is challenging and subject to a significant degree of uncertainty. Economic developments and policy decisions can have unpredictable and complex effects on the economy, and it is difficult to predict their outcomes with complete accuracy. That's the end of the quote. Now, I'm not going to get, ask you to guess who said this. I'm going to tell you that it wasn't written by an economist. Indeed, it wasn't written by a human. <laughs> <laughs> it was given to me by ChatGPT. <laughs> Actually, it was given to Martin by ChatGPT. 
The artificial intelligence underlying it reminds us that technology sometimes progresses in leaps, which can lead to a sudden emergence of productive investment opportunities across the global economy. New rounds of technological revolution are amongst the factors that could shift up global big R star, and monetary policy would have to move with it. So even if monetary policy is neutral in the long run, long run supply does affect monetary policy by anchoring the level of interest rates. Now, over the short term, the actual equilibrium interest rate, that's little R star, will fluctuate around the trend level of big R star, driven by shorter term inferences from both the demand and supply sides. And this is what matters for monetary policy here and now. Why is that? Because little R star is the rate at which demand is in line with supply, so that there is no output gap, neither excess demand nor excess supply in the economy. Responding to shifts in little R star is what helps keep inflation close to target. That doesn't mean that monetary policy should always align bank rate exactly to little R star. Sometimes monetary policy faces trade-offs between inflation and the balance of supply and demand. But it does mean that supply matters for monetary policy also in the short run. By determining the level of demand, the economy can sustain without generating excess inflationary pressures. It affects the appropriate level of interest rates, effectively by setting the speed limit for the economy. And when shocks drive inflation away from target in a way we have seen, monetary policy responds by stirring demand to a level relative to supply that ensures that inflation returns to target sustainably. Now, monetary policy can't affect the level of supply, but the level of supply will affect the appropriate setting of monetary policy. And it matters, therefore, that big shocks to the economy have weighed heavily on supply in recent times. Now, this chart, which came from our latest February monetary policy report, shows that the MPC's estimated level of potential supply has not yet regained its pre-pandemic level. It illustrates that the committee based its most recent forecast of the economy on the key judgment that the level would only recover very gradually. On our latest estimates, the growth rate of the potential of the UK economy, the supply side, is probably now around 1% per annum. Now, that's a pretty stark number because it compares to a typical growth rate in the decade leading up to the financial crisis of somewhere getting around two and three quarter percent. To understand these movements in supply, we can dive into its constituent parts. Supply depends on the amount of both labor and capital in the economy. It can be thought of simply as the amount of labor available in the economy and the productivity of that labor in producing goods and services. Now, you can say a lot about both, but I'm only going to fact you'll be relieved to hear I'm only going to be focused on labor supply. As COVID hit, labor supply growth came to an abrupt halt. The size of the workforce, that is the share of the population taking active part in the labor market, declined by around 132,000 people, which is about 0.4%. And that's measured from the three months to December 2019 to the three months to January this year. Now, that's a stark contrast to a steady growth rate of around three quarters of a percent per year during the preceding decades. These may sound like small numbers, but even small changes in these small percentages of the whole workforce of nearly 33 million add up to a lot of people. Now, the primary cause of this reduction in labor supply is an increase in the proportion of the population that does not take part in the workforce, 
either by working or looking actively for a job. And you can see this from this chart. It's the white line. Such economic inactivity rose noticeably during the pandemic. Unlike moves in employment and unemployment, this rise has not unwound as the economy has recovered. There are two important factors that account for this increase in economic inactivity. The first is the aging of the population, which as we've seen has increased the share of people who are older than what at least used to be the retirement age. That accounts for around a third of the increase in economic activity. It will provide a continuing drag in the coming years. The second factor is a change in the share of working age people actively participating in the labor market. Particularly striking is the rise in inactivity of people aged 50 to 64. When leaving the labor force, many people in this age group say they have retired early, making a choice about the life they would like to live. At the same time, people who have become inactive seem to have moved further away from the labor market. Most commonly, they say, because their health has deteriorated. Now, as you can see in the next chart uh, in blue, long-term sickness has driven much of the persistent rise in inactivity amongst the 16 to 64-year-olds since the start of the pandemic. And that in itself is quite a striking fact. And as their number has increased, the inactive population appears more detached from the labor market. More of the inactive people now say that they would not like a job than before the pandemic, and fewer now expect to return to work. So the challenge for us is how should monetary policy respond to such a reduction in labor force participation? The first thing to note is that this does not seem to be a case in which participation has fallen in response to weaker economic conditions and a weaker labor market. It's not a fall in participation driven by a shock to demand. So we should not expect there to be a margin of spare capacity outside the workforce that exerts downward pressure on inflation in a way that would call for a lower level of interest rates to stimulate demand. Instead, the rise in economic inactivity is a change to the supply of labor independent of demand, in particular by older workers. If those workers have accumulated enough savings to sustain a desired level of consumption, much like the one they had before their retirement, at least for a while, aggregate demand will not have fallen by as much as aggregate supply. We should expect this to put upward pressure on inflation in a way that would call for a higher level of interest rates to dampen demand. So, while population aging is very likely to pull long-run R-star down, as I discussed earlier, the effects on shorter-run little R-star from a change in labor force participation are harder to assess. In the shorter run, by reducing the productive capacity of the economy, the rise in inactivity driven by early retirement seems likely to have contributed to a rise in little R-star. And this is part of the reason why we've had to raise bank rate by as much as we have. So let me finish by just taking a step back and talking about monetary policy in the time of COVID and where we might go next. I'll start by revisiting the response to COVID in light of this discussion, because it's a very particular example of how difficult it can be in practice to judge the relative impact of supply and demand. The pandemic was highly unusual and difficult for many reasons. In terms of the economy, it was unusual for the sudden and extreme fall in economic activity but also for the almost synchronous and equivalent fall in both aggregate demand and supply. In most recessions, demand falls much more abruptly than supply, 
an output gap opens up, creating spare capacity in the economy and a rise in unemployment. Well, that's not what happened during COVID. The reason this unusually synchronous pattern of movements in demand and supply took place is not hard to find. Government policy on public health in the face of the most extreme pandemic for at least a century led to deliberate lockdowns. Much economic activity simply ceased to take place. So the important question that we faced as monetary policymakers was what would happen when the restrictions were lifted as COVID abated? Would a synchronous and equivalent fall in demand and supply simply be followed by a synchronous and equivalent rise? At the time, I remember being asked quite often if the pandemic would leave scars on the economy. Would there be lasting damage to the economy? As put, the question was about whether firms would be able to survive the prolonged economic impact of the pandemic, let alone continue to invest in the future, or whether millions would be driven into unemployment as the government furlough scheme, which remunerated those whose jobs were in effect suspended, was set to end at the end of September 2021. The answer to this question was not clear at the time. The furlough scheme was unprecedented and had been operating for a year and a half, and even firms were unsure of what the effects on recruitment would be, as they reported to the Bank of England's agents at the time. So a key consideration for policy was to ensure that supply would come back on stream, and for monetary policy in particular, to ensure that there was sufficient demand in the economy to pick it up. However, what actually happened was quite different from what we had feared. The situation we found ourselves in over the autumn and winter of 2021-22 was not a looser labour market and an increase in unemployment as the furlough scheme ended. Rather, it was a tighter labour market and a decline in labour market participation. As this chart shows, during this time, supply turned out to be weaker than demand. So in other words, as demand increased after COVID restrictions ended, supply did not follow to the same extent. At the same time, a rotation in demand away from services and towards goods, in particular in the US, continued to put strains on global supply chains. And unfortunately, the contraction in the labor force coincided with the most extreme shock of all during this period, the impact, particularly on energy prices, of Russia's appalling and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. So the supply side has played a more important and unusual role in recent macroeconomic developments. So I'll finish with a few remarks on where we are today. The economy has been subjected to some very large and overlapping shocks, the largest of which has come from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This has had a massive impact on energy prices last year and has substantially affected other prices, notably food prices. Now, for a variety of reasons, particularly in energy markets, those effects are now unwinding. And it's primarily for this reason that we expect to see a sharp fall in inflation during the course of this year, starting probably in a couple of months or so from now. Growth in the economy has suffered too, as a consequence of the sheer scale of the hit to the terms of trade. There's been a very large impact on national real income, from which I'm afraid there isn't anywhere to hide. But there is better news on that front. The economy has been more resilient of late, helped by the sharp fall in energy prices. And the same is true for the world economy more generally. What does this mean for monetary policy looking forwards? Well, our remit is clear. The adjustment and response to the shocks we've experienced must return CPI inflation to the 2% target sustainably. We must avoid these very large shocks leading to persistent inflation. And that is why we've raised the official interest rate 11 times 
to 4.25%. Recently, the evidence has pointed to more resilient activity in the economy and likewise employment, signs that nominal wage growth has been rather weaker than expected. And most recently, two months in which there was first some downside news on inflation relative to our expectation, and then a bit more upside news. And I think this reminds us that the path of inflation will not be entirely smooth, and cost and price pressures, of course, remain elevated. Now, alongside all of this news, we've seen some big strains in parts of the global banking system emerge. Assessing this would be another speech, which I'm not going to make this evening. You'll be hugely relieved to hear, I'm sure. But suffice to say that we believe the UK banking system is resilient with robust capital and liquidity positions and well-placed to support the economy. And we have a strong macroprudential policy regime in this country. The bank's financial policy committee is on the case in terms of securing financial stability. And this is important for monetary policy because it means the MPC can focus on its job of returning inflation to target. But we have to be very alert to any signs of persistent inflationary pressures. If they become evident, further monetary tightening would be required. And I'll conclude by saying, with this in mind, the MPC's response will be firmly anchored in the emerging evidence. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or... Can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, Andrew, for that clarity in turbulent times. Maybe I'll start with a couple of questions and then I'm going to turn to the audience and then to those online. I was going to ask you if you could imagine a world without the war in Ukraine, would we revert to the time of historically low interest rates? Or do you actually think those fundamentals have changed? You know, I'm asking you if Big R Star is going to go back to low for long. And what I almost heard you say was that Big R Star is unknowable. And all we can know is little R Star. Is that Not quite. I mean, I think where I would come out on that is that the long run structural forces driving uh, Big R Star remain in place, and particularly the aging of the global population. Right. So I think the reason I said there is good reason to think that we will, I'm not saying we'll revert down to the levels we were at, but we will not stay as high as probably we were in the past is because big R star mm. trend rate is lower. And that's not giving any view on productivity. I mean, we could debate that obviously at length, but I think the, the aging population story on its own would probably take us there because it's obviously subject to very slow moving drivers in a sense. And you mm. don't really see those drivers changing much at the moment. No, demography mm. is destiny, as they often say. And then I'm going to ask you a question about the speech you didn't give on financial stability, <laughs> which is, I'm make the other speech, <laughs> which is, um, you know, the last couple of weeks have challenged our approach to mm. bank failures. After 2008 financial crisis, the regulatory regime focused on raising the bar for systemically important banks, making it clear that shareholders, certain types of bondholders and large depositors wouldn't be bailed out and making sure that big banks had living wills so that they could be resolved in an orderly fashion through the resolution regime if they were in trouble. But the handling of SVB and Credit Suisse defied many of those principles. It turns out that if a lot of other small and medium-sized banks look like you, you are you become systemic. The wind down of Credit Suisse didn't respect the normal hierarchy in bank resolution. 
And we haven't used, we don't seem to execute those living wills that we spent so much regulatory energy in creating in recent years. So have the past few weeks changed your thinking about handling bank failures, the scope of deposit insurance and the role of resolution? Well, it's been interesting. I, first of all, let me say, obviously, we had a fairly small part of SVB in the UK at subsidiary. And we put the playbook, the post-crisis playbook to work, yeah. actually, over the weekend, very extensively. The outcome we came out with was very much out of the playbook. What we announced at the start, that we would use the insolvency process because we thought it wasn't systemic, was, in my view, important. Again, it's, it's a key part of the playbook for small banks, and it was designed to say there is not a systemic problem to the financial system. So, you know, don't worry about that. And then we can get on with getting out with a better outcome for the bank itself, which we did. Mm. You know, that came together. You can't always guarantee it will come together, but it did. And I was, from that point of view, I think the, the playbook and the, all the planning we've done and all the practicing we've done um, came to pass. I think there are other elements of it. I mean, I'm not going to comment on you know, the Swiss authorities obviously faced particular challenge of, of Credit Suisse, and you know they had to deal with that very difficult task. We were part of it, but but not the lead authority at all in that. And there is a resolution plan for Credit Suisse, as the Swiss authorities have said. Now, against the background of that, they chose a, to do a different course within that, which of course you can do, but you have to do it knowing that you've got something operating in the background that you can rely on. And I'm not going to comment on why they chose to, to do the 81 uh, decision as they did, because that is very much for them. We did come out with a statement last Monday, as the Euro area authorities did, just pointing out that in a resolution, a pure resolution situation in the playbook, as you describe it, Manish, one of the cardinal principles of resolution is, is the creditor hierarchy. But let me be clear. I do know that the Swiss 81 instruments had a contractual clause in them. That, you know, it was that, a get-out that, clause. That, that, no. That provided that. No. But in a resolution, the creditor hierarchy is, is an absolute cardinal principle of operating resolution. So, no. I, I mean, I'll finish by saying, um, look, there are lots of lessons we'll learn from this. Of course, we always do. Um, I can talk from the UK point of view at the moment that it, you know, the playbook was vital to what we did. Okay, thank you. Let me turn to the audience here. Uh, and if you could introduce yourself briefly, I'm going to take that person there, and then I'll take you, and I'll take this one here. And then I'll turn to the online audience. Uh, hi, my name is Tommy, and I am a student of economics here at DLSE. As you said, supply matters, and I agree with you. So how do you ensure in times of economic turmoil that the general business confidence remains optimistic? In, in other words, how do you keep the animal spirits high? Thank you. Okay, very good. Uh, thank you, uh, David Marsh from OMFIF. I wanted to ask you about another element in the causal link regarding people leaving the labor force um, and whether QE might have played an unusually dynamizing effect in this to the extent that this might have been thought to have increased the value of savings, particularly of older people, particularly housing prices, which might have led them, therefore, to have left the labor market with greater alacrity than they might otherwise have done. And hence, this business about supply rising less fast than demand, it might actually have one of the antecedents in in QE. And if that is so, and that led to this increase in little R star that you're talking about, would that change the way that people in future generations, say, or in future years, look at the nature of QE, not just in this country, but in other parts of the world? Okay. Person here. Hi, I'm Vinayak. I'm a student of economics at the LSE. And 
my question was in a albeit brief period of financial instability and uncertainty could you comment on the direction of which this period of instability would affect little asta okay oh, thank you um on animal spirits um i think the most important thing to say about that of course is that having a framework which is designed to get us back to economic stability uh, to get inflation back to target is the best backdrop for that we are as i said we've experienced huge shocks in the world economy in the last 3 years we've had a global pandemic one of the biggest for at least a century we've sadly got the biggest european war going on since 1945 uh, these are huge shocks and of course they affect business confidence i mean you know, there is a relationship between uncertainty and investment and of course these things have an effect and i think it's you know it's the job of all of us as economic policy makers monetary policy is part of that but it's not the only part of it to return to the, the stability that supports uh, economic activity and investment as quickly as we can so david on qe so <laughs> i'm going to start with sort of the backdrop to this is the fall in in real interest rates i think the qe didn't cause that QE is really a response to that actually in many ways in terms of how monetary policy should respond to it. And I you know my view on QE is very much I, I think it's very well set out by Ben Bernanke in his book that he published last year on uh, on monetary policy. You know it has its main effect in operating somewhat further along the interest rate curve and that it will keep interest rates down somewhat further along the curve and that will support investment. and i think that is the strongest argument work that we've done at the bank of england you know i've been involved in with colleagues would also suggest that i think as we've experienced it more i think we realize that its effects are more state contingent than we thought they were so in other words it has more effect in probably in times of greater disturbance than it does in times of lesser disturbance but even in times of lesser disturbance this the point that ben bernanke made i think still holds i still believe that so I don't think QE is the cause of this. It was a response to it um, in terms of the response to to falling real interest rates. I, I don't really subscribe to the view that QE is the causal factor there. On the um, really good question on <laughs> financial disturbance and, and little R star, mm. I think there's a really important point here about the relationship between financial stability and monetary policy. and and it's one that you know i can tell you a lot of people speculated on how we were, i can't speak for the fed and the ecb but i can speak for the npc and how we were going to react last week in our meeting to the sort of turmoil that had been going on you know around us and i draw to a really important distinction between two points monetary policy has to take into account the effect of this on credit conditions on on borrowing costs on risk premium and we do that's natural because we always do so if, if if things become different we take that into account the key distinction was that we have a financial stability policy a macro prudential policy that is ensuring financial stability and so we did not have to sit down as a monetary policy committee and say do we have to use monetary policy as a tool yeah. to address financial instability that is for me an absolutely key part of the framework i mean the fact that as the npc i can tell you we didn't have to sit down and have that conversation we can the fpc you know actually and you know, we we arranged we don't normally do this because in steady stable times you don't need to do this but the fpc gave the npc its assessment of monetary policy of financial stability and actually the treasury select committee of essentially published that because i wrote to them ahead of a hearing i've got tomorrow morning and set it out and the fpc was able to say to the npc here's our assessment of financial stability in the uk and we conclude that the system the other banking system is clearly safe and sound and that meant that the npc could say okay we can now set 
yeah, we can set monetary policy, taking into account the effects on credit conditions and so on, but not having to say, do we have to intervene? Do we have to do something for financial stability? And that is, for me, is a crucial part of the framework. Agreed. Let me turn to the online audience and uh, my colleague, Danny Hatton, will read some of the questions from online. Governor Vicki Price from our own Center for Economics and Business Research, just surprised that fiscal policy has been hardly mentioned impact of uh, monetary conditions. LSE grad Michal Smels says, given the clear communication of a bank's monetary policy leads to improved economic outcomes and transmissions of monetary policy, what are the challenges to effective management of forward guidance within an economic recovery? And I guess since the hardest questions are the simplest ones, Zena Zenonos asks, what is so special about the 2% inflation target? <laughs> it's like the short essays are always the hardest ones. Yeah, to exactly. Um, I didn't mention fiscal policy because I wasn't talking about fiscal policy. What I will say, though, of course, on the supply side is that fiscal policy is an important part of that story. And, you know, I welcome the fact in the budget, the Chancellor has actually explicitly set out to seek to address you know, particularly areas like the labour supply. I mean, it is crucial because monetary policy isn't going to do that. Uh, so I think, you know, monetary policy operates independently of fiscal policy. But of course, you know, we can get a lot of help from fiscal policy. And I welcome the fact that there's a sort of structural focus of the, in, in those measures. We'll see what effect they have because you say we're learning a lot about the conditions we're in, but that's welcome. On forward guidance, I mean, I think this is one of the things that I'm sure there will be a lot of evaluation of as we sort of come out of this period of shock, of big shocks. I'll say this for myself, I don't think it's any great secret that in, I certainly feel that in an era when you're experiencing very big and unpredictable shocks, I think you have to be very careful to how you use forward guidance because, frankly, your ability to predict the future is much less. And so I've, you know, I've become, I'll be honest with you, much more cautious about its role as a result of that, particularly in the conditions that we're in. So what's so special about the 2% target? I always go back, to, I think this is attributed to Alan Greenspan. Well, let's start with what is monetary stability. And it's a level of, of price change that means that people do not factor inflation in specifically as a sort of an extra factor in their economic decision making. Now, that doesn't tell you the answer is 2%, but I think the point Alan Greenspan made at the time was that 2%, although actually he wasn't an inflation targeter as such, but, but believed in the point about what is stability. I think 2% is a reasonable approximation for what is a sort of common sense definition of that. And it's become firmly embedded. And I'm afraid I'm not in, in the camp that says, let's change it, because I think it is well embedded as a definition of price stability in that sense, going back to that definition that I think Greenspan originated. Okay, I think we've got time for another round in the room. Okay, I'll take one, two. Oh, and I'll take you two. How's that in the front? Quick question on to the... IFPR, which is new regime implemented last year, separating investment firms from banking firms. Um, how the K-factor requirements become much more useful in banking sector compared with CR, for example? And second question is in relation to Credit Suisse, in terms of uh, the $3 billion payout to shareholder with uh, scrapped value for bondholders. Uh, just here. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Adam. I'm an MPA student here with LSE in Colombia. Um, my question is, upon addressing uh, the Kennedy School, former Deputy Governor of the Banque de France, 
Jean-Pierre Landau discussed three principles for central bank governors um, to keep in mind when considering to steer these troubling times. He essentially said to strengthen independence, to have total flexibility to act, and to focus on proactive monetary policy. Do you agree? Or would you have any deviations to this um, three elements? To what was the third one? Sorry, I was... Uh, to total focus on proactive monetary policy. Proactive monetary policy. Proactive, 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 proactive right. monetary Sorry, policy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank right. you once again. And then I'll take the two in the front here. Hi, uh, Lucy White from Bloomberg. I think you spoke a little bit about um, the fact that the MPC and the FPC have the remit to be completely independent from one another, and the FPC essentially gave the MPC the green light. Um, do you see any tension in the way that they're interacting with each other or may interact? Um, you, you know, you said the FPC were perfectly happy with with stability before the last MPC, but could that change? And do you see any tension in the fact that the MPC is sort of slightly pushing in the other direction? Um, by tightening monetary policy. And on that subject, um, are there any other banks that you're looking at particularly closely? <laughs> 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 nice try. Nice try, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Iron also from The Telegraph. Um, you touched on this briefly, um, but you, you mentioned how the UK's shrinking workforce uh, is the reason why interest rates have had to go higher. Obviously, Jeremy Hunt has set out a range of measures to address this. Um, what impact do you think they'll have? Do you think that means interest rates can come lower sort of in, in the long run? Um, and in the OBR's uh, projections, quite a bit, lot of the boost to the work- workforce comes from higher immigration. Does that mean that higher immigration would mean that we could have lower interest rates? Thank you. Okay. Nice, easy question. Right. Yeah, they're sort of interesting. So uh, let me start with the LCR, liquidity coverage ratio. Let me put this into the context of liquidity policy post crisis. There's two policies. I mean, there's LCR, liquidity coverage ratio, and there's the net stable funding ratio. And I think you know, they are both important because one of the problems we had in the financial crisis was, I mean, there was a solvency problem, but it was also a liquidity problem. The LCR effectively provides that, uh, you know, banks have, you know, high quality liquid assets, cash or near cash. Uh, that they can use, and I'll, I'll make this point, which I think is one of the lessons that we, you know, have to take from Silicon Valley Bank. That's not the only example of it. We've had a, a few little others around the world. Is in an age of social media, the speed at which runs can take place, and also, of course, in an age of digital banking, the speed at which yeah. the social media can be translated into loss. I mean, it, it is striking that that happened very quickly, and of course, you know word gets around. So this is very different from the Northern Rock style queue outside the branch uh, type thing. Mm. And we have to constantly look at the calibration of liquidity measures to say, do they match to that sort of dynamic that's taking place? Um, As I say, I'm not going to say any more about the shareholder payout on Credit Suisse, because that was a decision the Swiss authorities had to take themselves. They have to take it knowing the facts that they know. I don't know all the facts that they knew. I know what the UK end of it looked like, but that's not relevant to the UK end. So I'm, I'm not going to comment further on that. Um, on the principles of being a sort of uh, a good central banker, as it were, I, I would add one. I, I think independence, flexibility to act, and proactive implementation are all good. What I would say is that I think this, this interaction of flexibility and independence has to go with accountability. We have to explain ourselves, and we have to explain ourselves fulsomely and frequently, because that's what goes with you know, preserving independence but having flexibility to act. You know, people say, well, you know, 
as an unelected person, how much flexibility should you be given? And my point back, well, we need as much as we can to do what you've asked us to do, but we have to be accountable for it. I mean, that's that's a key factor in supporting it. Um, there isn't tension between the MPC and the FPC at all, actually. I think it's very clear that there are times, as was the case last week, as was the case last autumn, when it's important that the FPC uh, sets out its view of financial stability so that the Monetary Policy Committee uh, can take it into account. And the key principle also here is that our job as a central bank is also to, if you like, make the pieces fit together. You know, that's why we do the, all the things. And the key thing for the Monetary Policy Committee is that it has the tools to do its job, that those tools are not being constrained by other factors. You know, it's, a, it's a factor that I constantly sort of bear in mind. And I can tell you that, you know, in both examples, the answer to that was no, the MPC could do what it needed to do without, you know, in a sense of restriction. And that's critical because if I felt that was the case, then we would have to address the underlying cause of it. But it wasn't the case. Um, on the budget, I think, as I said before, I'd repeat what I said before. I think it is very welcome and important that we've got budget measures that seek to address the supply side of the economy. And that's, that's very appropriate. Of course, what effects those have will be frankly, will play out over time. And I think it's important that they do. So, you know, I welcome them. I think they're really addressed at the right things. I'm, I'm pleased that we are having what I might call the national debate on the question of labor supply, because it is a very important question. I mean, I go back to the point I made in my remarks, a 1% you know, growth rate of potential per annum is very low, yeah. very low. We have to address this question. So, you know, every politician who said growth matters, yes, it does. Of course it does. It's not for us to determine what immigration is. I'm going to stay well out of that debate. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have time for yes, one or two more? Let's take a couple more from the online audience then. From Banadaf, who is an EMPA uh, alumnus. How will the BOE navigate the challenge between preserving its independence and its necessary intervention in the economy? One more. Michael Rubens, uh, a BSc student at Cambridge. To what extent do interest rates actually affect inflation? And by extension, would you say that the Bank of England has been too naive in increasing interest rates to decrease inflation efficiently? On the first question, I'd really go back to what I think we said in, on the Jean-Pierre Landau point, actually, which mm -hmm. is independence and necessary intervention have to come with accountability. And, um, you know, every day seems to, to lead to the joy of another Treasury Select Committee appearance, and I've got one tomorrow morning. So, um, but it's important. I mean, you know, we are accountable. You know, we take it extremely seriously, and that's what goes with independence and the powers that, that we have. Um, on the question of interest rates affecting inflation, uh, let me say this. I made the point, made the point at length in the speech really about the impact of these external terms of trade shocks. I mean, you know, sadly, I wish we could do something about Russia and Ukraine, but we can't. Mm. Um, that's not within our powers. Uh, we can't affect that. As I said in the speech, there is no hiding. We can't hide that the effect of that terms of trade shock. What I'm very concerned about, and we're very concerned about, of course, is that that impulse to inflation doesn't pass through then into domestic inflation. And that's why we have to raise interest rates. It's the persistence issue. You know, I do think, as I said, that inflation will come down quite sharply this year because it's the reversal of the energy price shocks that we had last year. Mm. Um, the issue for us is persistence. It's what happens thereafter, really, actually, and, and, and what the underlying level of core inflation is in the economy. And that goes back to the, the balance of supply and demand that I talked about. Okay. Very good. 
Andrew, thank you so much for coming, especially the night before a Treasury Select Committee. For those of you who don't know what that's like, I have done them in the past. It's like a combination of having four exams the next morning, plus a viva for a PhD televised. So so, uh, you've uh, done us a great service by coming uh, the night before you're facing. You booked me before the Treasury Secretary. I see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, your talk emphasizing the importance of supply is such a good reminder to us. You know, the demography is a little bit destiny and is a little bit unmovable, but productivity is not. And what happens to productivity in this country will determine the future path of interest rates in the longer term. And more importantly, the future path of living standards. And you remind us importantly that we need to remember that. Mm. So thank you very much. Thank you for the audience, both here and online, for your excellent questions. And please join me in thanking Andrew Bailey for his excellent Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.